some people, like yeah. Lynn Ham has. Gary Kemp. Gary, you have a good whistle? I used to. Oh. Used to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I used to have a whistle. All right. Well, welcome to those here in person and welcome to those listening online. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning, but I want to open with a word of prayer first. So, Russ, would you please be sure? Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can uh, be together and worship together and uh, hear your word uh, together. So, open our eyes and ears and hearts uh, to hear what you would have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, last week in 2 Timothy, um, we had the first seven verses, and Paul gives us three um, illustrations to help us get a picture of what the Christian life is like. And so he said there's some things we can learn from soldiers. Anybody remember what we're supposed to learn from Soldiers, three basic things. Go ahead, Mark, you were a soldier. Don't remember. Don't remember, okay. That's fair. Okay, so if you don't remember, just like peek at verse three and four. And that's where the answers are. So some things Christians are to learn from soldiers. Don't get entangled in civilian pursuits. Okay, good. So talk about getting distracted by the world and its pursuits instead of staying on focus. What else? Sure, suffer. Okay, being willing to suffer hardship. Um, and then one last thing, what's the goal of it all? To <laughs> please the one who enlisted him. Right. So please our commander in chief. We want to be pleasing to the Lord. All right, what are some things we are to learn from athletes? What happens? Get disqualified. Okay, so we gave some examples of Lance Armstrong and others who looked like they won their sport and yet were had those uh, achievements taken away from them because they cheated, doped, or did other things that uh, were against the rules. And then, of course, First Corinthians 9 talks about the dedication of athletes as well that were to run in such a way as to win. We're not just out for a a jog, we're out to run the race. And then last, what were some things we're to learn from farmers? Well, we mentioned it's the hardworking ones that should have the first share. Okay, so hard work is involved in getting a harvest doesn't just happen by itself. There's some hard work involved, as farmers know very well, to have harvest. 
And then last, um, what is the relationship between thinking carefully and seeking the Lord's help to understand his word? What's the relationship between those two things? Pray for understanding. Right. And then does God just zap us, or what happens? It says to think about it. Think. <laughs> so praying doesn't replace thinking. Thinking doesn't replace praying. We need both. So I think we're typically going to be wired to do one or the other. And Paul's reminding us, don't just do one or the other. If you like to think and analyze and diagram senses and all those kind of things, some of us are wired to do that. That's great. Don't forget to ask the Holy Spirit for help to show you wonderful things out of this word. And if you're more inclined to not do the studying and the hard thinking, just like, okay, Lord, show me. That's great. But I'll say, you still got to think. <laughs> you got to use your brain. God gave you to look at sentences and structure and connections and how the author is leading you in a train of thought. It's a thinking process. So don't just get all spiritual and go, ooh, the spirit will show me. And don't just like, I can figure this out myself. I don't need any help from anybody, including the spirit. So those are the extremes, and we want both. So any comments or questions on what we saw last week? All right, let's go to verse 8 through... 10. Somebody read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Thank you. So why would Paul need to remind Timothy and basically remind us remember Jesus Christ? Why does he need to write that sentence? Because we're forgetful. Bingo. <laughs> we can even forget Jesus. Isn't that something? How does that happen? Or maybe it doesn't happen to you guys. Getting caught up on the affairs of daily life. Okay, which is interesting in light of what he said about soldiers, isn't it? Don't get entangled in all the affairs of daily life, because you could end up forgetting Jesus. Anything else? It's easy to forget Jesus in just being a good person. There's a lot of churches and a lot of Christians who focus so hard on don't do bad things that they, there's no Jesus anywhere. Okay, good. Good observation. Anything else? So what's one of the ways Jesus ordained for us to remember him? It's not in this verse. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me, not just Remembrance of my death, although that's what we're remembering and what it accomplished, but don't forget him. Isn't that something? So, as 
Moses pointed out, we are forgetful pilgrims. We forget the most important person in the universe. And at least the Lord's Supper, roughly, in our church, every other month, reminds us, don't forget Jesus. Don't forget what he did on the cross and his resurrection. Don't forget the most important thing. Otherwise, you can all too easily get distracted by everything else. So, any comments or questions on that? What kind of hardship is Paul enduring and why does he do it? He's in jail. Right. For preaching the gospel. Okay. So that's A, it's for preaching the gospel, so that's still in some countries right now, you can go to jail for trying to do that. And then what's the other piece of why he's willing to do that? For the sake of the elect. Okay. So sometimes you hear, well, if God has it all ordained anyway from before the foundation of the earth, why do we even bother worrying about evangelism or missions or praying or we'll just sit back and let God do it. And that's not how the Bible sees it. <laughs> Paul says, yeah, God does have a people that he's called for himself, and I'm here for their sake so that they'll hear the gospel and believe and come into glory. So God uses means, he uses evangelism, he uses missions to gather his people, and so Paul isn't just passive and waiting for God to you know, do something. He is willing to even be in jail because he's preaching the gospel because the gospel is how God brings people to himself. That makes sense. So any other comments or questions on those verses before we look at 11 through 13? Okay, let's somebody read 11 through 13, please. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Okay, thank you. So four couplets, each of them has an if-then statement. If this, then this outcome. So what's the first phrase talking about? If we died with him, we will also live with him. What does that mean? Okay, good. So not necessarily die as a martyr. It's, it's died, past tense. So uh, there's a, a death to sin and self and safety that's involved in following Christ. When he says, count the cost of him, deny himself, follow me. So there's that. I'm no longer in charge. I, I die to that. I now will live in newness of life and enjoy eternal life as the outcome of that. That makes sense? Pretty straightforward, right? What about the second phrase? If we endure, we will also reign with him. What does that mean? <clears throat> okay, good. Good, and, and we've seen that word endure several times already in 2 Timothy, haven't we? Um, verse 3, 
endure hardship with me as a good soldier. Verse 9 and 10, um, I endure hardship even to imprisonment. Uh, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. So endure, endure, endure. And the outcome of that is not just, well, you get a special prize for endurance. You get to reign with Christ. Okay? So let's look at Revelation 5, 9, and 10. About that idea of reigning. Somebody read Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay, so we will reign on the earth someday. Okay, what is the third couplet saying back in 2 Timothy 2? Deny him or disown him, he will also disown or deny us. What's that mean? Let's go to Matthew 10. And would somebody please read 32 and 33? Matthew 10. Thirty-two and thirty-three. <coughs> Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before men, uh, him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Okay, so the stakes are high, right? Either Christ says, "Yes, you're one of mine." on the last day before the Father, or he says, I don't claim this one. And it's connected to whether we acknowledge or confess him before men not here, or deny him or disown him here. So that one's, I think, fairly straightforward, right? Maybe a little scary. So then what about the fourth couplet? Sincere Christians have come to different conclusions on this. So let's just interact with 2 Timothy that fourth couplet. It says, if if we are faithless, what other words do you guys have? Believe not. Believe not, okay. He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So, let me share the two ways that verse has been handled, and you can tell me which one you think is most compelling. So the first version would be to say it's synonymous with denying him. The, the, two, the four couplets, the first two are kind of positive. We die, we reign, or live, we endure, we reign. You deny, he's denying you. If you're faithless, he'll 
faithful to his promise to deny him. That's the way a lot of Christians would take that verse. Um, and if it was absolute, final, unrepented apostasy, um, then God would be faithful to the threat of Matthew 10 and the disowners. Um, so that's one version, and a lot of good Christians hold to that. Let me throw out another possibility. You tell me which one is weightier. So first would be um, number three. The third couplet is frightening enough without any additional threats of consequences, don't you think? If you deny me, I'll deny you. That gets our attention, right? So that'd be one piece. Is Paul trying to scare Timothy and us or encourage us to hold on to our hope in Christ? I think it's trying to encourage Timothy and us. And a third part is he remains faithful. Is that phrase about Jesus, the Lord being faithful used most often as a threat of punishment or as an encouragement to hang on? And if you want, I have seven texts in the New Testaments that link a promise with the fact that God is faithful. Okay? So seven in a row that say God's faithfulness is an encouragement, and none that I can find that say God's faithfulness is he'll be faithful to carry out a threat at least tips it a little bit. And here's where I go with that. So, in light of the Lord's faithfulness being used to encourage his children, um, instead of threaten them, it seems like here is a way of handling that last phrase. If slash when our faith wavers and is weak, he remains faithful and committed to us. So can you think of an example in the Gospels where that principle shows up? Peter. Okay. So, um, first of all, would you say Peter looked pretty faithless that night? Denies the Lord three times with oaths and curses. So not just a little mild, oh, I'm not sure I know him, but using bad language and calling God oath curses down upon him if he's saying something wrong. I don't know this man. Nothing to do with it. So I think we'd say that definitely qualifies as faithless, right? Or there. So let's look at Luke 22. Luke 22, would somebody read 31 and 32? Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So remember Peter's boasting, even if everybody else denies you, I'll never do that. I'll even die. <clears throat> Which was obviously overconfidence in itself. Peter tells him, no, that's not how tonight's going to look. You're going to deny me three times. But I've prayed for you, and when, not if, you return, strengthen the brothers. So it's not a question of 
you might return, you might not, I hope you do, it's when, because God's going to answer Jesus' prayer to restore Peter, right? So, the Lord was faithful to sustain Peter even though Peter's faith temporarily failed. And I think that's at least as strong of an approach to the last phrase. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot die himself. The Lord is faithful to keep us even when we aren't strong enough to keep ourselves, which is every day. So which one weighs heavier in your mind? Does it sound more like it's just another way of saying he's going to be faithful to deny us or he's going to hold on to us even though we waver? Like it's a healthy fear. Okay, tell us what like you mean by healthy fear. The verse that says don't fear man but fear God because he can destroy your body and your soul. Right. That makes me scared in a healthy way to just be faithful to him. Okay, okay. Ruth. Why would you apply Peter to the fourth but not the third? That's a great question, Ruth. That's a great question. And, and I'm not going to answer it myself. <laughs> I see it as the first three make it look like it's depending on us. It says if we do this, then this will happen. But to me, the fourth says we're, we're faithless. We're going to fail in those. And But God is the one who's faithful. God is the one who will bring us through in all three of those because there's times I don't die to myself. There's times I make decisions that won't lead to endurance. There's times I would deny him. And so we're faithless. But but God is faithful. He's the one who actually accomplishes the second half of each of those first three. Because he can't deny himself, because we are his, we're in his palm, all of those things. That is a great insight. Yeah, because if God left anything up to us to complete the work of salvation, none of us are going to make it, right? <laughs> We're just not. If there's anything left to human error, we will find a way to do it and lose it. Okay, so I am inclined to really affirm what Russ just said, and Ruth, I think, anybody want to take a shot at Ruth while I still, like, I'm just scrambling for time on a lot of things. I think it's the point of if we are faithless. When, when we are faithless, like Peter was, God is faithful. So, amen. So I think Ruth, the, the denying part is his denial was temporary and partial because he says that your faith not, may not fail was how Jesus prayed. So it wasn't final apostasy like you know some of the people you read about, they're deconstructing, I throw the whole thing, I don't believe this junk anymore, I'm a whatever. Um, it was, your faith's going to waver, you're going to hit the pavement, but I'm not going to let you stay there. I'm going to pick you back up and re restore you, and you'll strengthen your brethren. So I think it was a temporary, partial wavering of faith than a full-scale, final, complete denial of Jesus. It's like the fourth one is helping to clarify what's meant by the third one. The third one, like you're saying, is, you know, a complete cutoff. I reject God altogether um, and forever. But the we makes me think Peter's, I mean, Paul is including himself in when he says, if we deny him, 
he will deny us. That's why I'm having trouble with that. Sure. And 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 Matthew 10 is still in the Bible. I mean, so if we deny him in the like the full scale, he will deny us because it proves we were never his. So the verse I go to is like 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. For, here's the reason why I just said that, if they had been truly of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown they were never really of us. So if it's real, it lasts. If it doesn't last, it wasn't real. And the verdict is time. So in less than 24 hours, Peter's restored, right? And, okay, we've got Mark, and then we've got Amir. So Mark, I think I saw your hand first. Okay. Um, while Peter's denying the Lord, he's still there, first of all. Actually, he sees them. They, their eyes meet in yeah. Luke's account. He's still there. And then even after that, as Jesus is in the grave, he's with the other disciples. He hasn't broken off and run away. So there's still a, a major faith there, even though he's denied him publicly. He's, there's still something going on. Yeah, I like that. So remember, I uh, just read this in my question, Isaiah 42, um, which is fulfilled in, in Jesus in Matthew 4. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering or smoking wick he will not blow out. So here's Peter. For a while, he's got a pretty good candle burning, right? And that night, it's like three people went on his fire, and it's, it's smoldering. <laughs> it doesn't look like there's much left there, but there's still something there that it wasn't like a total quench, you're out. Okay, actually, Amaris is next, and then you bet. Amaris? So something that I see as a really big difference with the Peter situation is that that was pre-resurrection, pre-Holy Spirit indwelling believers, that the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet to indwell believers in the way that, you know, that happens after the resurrection of Christ, and that it never, Peter would never do that again once he received that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, giving him power to not deny him. Okay, that's, that's a good observation. And thankfully, I think Jesus still does intercede for us. We're told that in Hebrews 7 and Romans 8. But he is praying for Peter that your faith not fail. And I think we're, even with the Holy Spirit, I'm glad Jesus is praying for us. So, half. In Luke, it also confirms that he was already chosen. So he was one of his. The Lord knew exactly what he would do. And then he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, so he already knows what's going right. down here, right. and it's not like, so it's already, he knows it's one of his, mm -hmm. so he knows, he, you know, it's, he's, he's chosen, so it's not, there's not a, if, the, you know, there's not an option there, it's already a known, right? Yeah, Jesus is going, I hope you come back, Peter. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. Okay, and it's a good discussion. This is a big question. Other thoughts? So, have a healthy fear, like an electrician has a fear of electricity. If you had a scary kind of fear of electricity, you'd quit as an electrician. If, if you know I don't wire hot when 
this transformer's on. That's a good kind of fear, but I still work with electricity every day. So it's like, I know I don't want to cross the line. I don't want to apostatize. <laughs> In light of Jesus saying, if I deny him, he'll deny me in terms of the total final kind, that, that's a healthy fear. And I cling to Jesus. I'm his. He's praying for me. He's interceding for me. He'll keep me till the end. And so I will endure to the end and be saved. So I don't just get reckless and go, it doesn't matter what happens in the rest of my life because I, I have fire insurance for heaven. It's I have a healthy fear, but I'm, it's not a terrifying fear. It's a sobering, um, awe-producing kind of fear with thankfulness. Does that work? Moses. Um, so I was kind of having a discussion with someone a few weeks ago about you know this idea of God keeping his people and going through uh, many of these passages that we talked about. And then even, I guess, looking at the negative sense of those passages, those warnings in scriptures, like in Hebrews 6 or Hebrews 10, you know, of falling away, you know, trampling Jesus' name underfoot, you know, there is no repentance for those people. And it's like, okay, if we have this idea, well, not idea, but this truth that God does keep us and it's ultimately his grace that keeps us in the faith, then the question would be, then what's the purposes of the Bible having these passages anyway? Uh, if it's truly all God that keeps us, why do we have these warnings? If ultimately cash always. Okay. So God uses means, and one of the means He uses to preserve His people is warnings. So if you see a bottle in the medicine cabinet, this is, I mean, you don't find these anymore. But back in the day, there were like skull and crossbones on bottles, right? That's rat poison, or that's whatever. I don't know why you keep it in the medicine cabinet, but um, <laughs> let's say you found a different cabinet, not the medicine cabinet. <laughs> what happens when you wake things up on the fly? Um, <laughs> you find this bottle with skull and crossbones. Okay, do you open the go and pop a couple things? I think this is Tylenol. No. No. The warning keeps you safe and keeps you from poisoning yourself. Okay? If there's, um, be an example, um, warning, no bridge, bridge is out. If you know how to read, that bridge will keep you from plunging into the river. It will save your life. If you didn't have that sign, you might just drive right in. But the warning is a means of preserving your life and protecting you. And so the warnings, especially Hebrews, has several strong warning passages like, hey, don't, don't take this lightly. It matters if you persevere or not. And the good news is, yeah, so hang on to Jesus. And the good news is he's hanging on to you. And even if your grip wavers, he's still got a firm grip on you. That means. So God uses warnings to preserve his own. And the people that ignore his warning, well, I don't care, are showing where their heart's are and have been and so like those promises don't apply if you're not his right does that make sense so you mentioned Hebrews 6 i think we've touched on this way back but let's look at it again because i think a lot of people think that's a scary text it's Hebrews 6 someone went to read 
4 through 9. Hebrews 6, 4 through 9. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own arm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Okay, so there's three pieces of that passage. The phrases, there's four phrases describing some kind of contact with Christianity. And those phrases could go either way. You can't decide the argument on the terms. It could go either way. And you can show New Testament examples of like taste. Okay? Taste and see the Lord is good. Personal experience. Jesus tasted the wine but did not swallow it. So, which taste is it? Can't decide by the words alone. Okay? And even believe twice in John at least, believe is used, and yet it's not the real thing. John 2 and John 8. So even the word believe, if it was in Hebrews 6, wouldn't be a slam dunk. We're talking about real Christians. So, author of Hebrews, whoever you are, give me some clues. What are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Look, what's the word that connects that description and ground that drinks rain? What little three-letter word starts with an F? Four. Four. What does that tell us? Here's a reason. I just said this. Here's the reason why I just said this. What does that illustration of rain falling, but some fruit over here and some thistles and thorns over here, what parable does that remind you of? Soil. Soils. The seed was sown. One out of the four soils produces fruit. The others don't. Hint number one. And then verse nine starts with another important three-letter word. Starts with a B. But. <laughs> oh, you have though. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, I spell though. T-H-O in my notes, so still works. Still works. Though, in spite of the fact we are talking like this, but we're convinced of better things concerning you. What kind of things? Things concerning or accompanying salvation. So there it is. Here's these people have some kind of religious experience. They went forward, they raised the hand, they prayed the prayer, they did whatever, hang out church. 
But there are no fruit. They're just thorns and thistles. No fruit. But don't worry. I'm not talking about real believers. I'm. I talk that way to get make a point of warning. But I'm convinced of better things for you. Things like salvation. Those people aren't saved. You are, which says you are bearing fruit, and he's still calling these readers to persevere. And but and the warnings like this help them persevere, just like the warning, this is poison label, or the bridges out sign, or any other warnings that keep us safe. The author of Hebrews is using warnings to keep God's people in the faith. That make sense? Something that's kind of, I think, changed in my perception of the, over the years. I feel like I always used to ask the question, um, can you lose your salvation? And then kind of in more recent months, it's kind of become less of a, I don't think the Bible really wants us to think of it in those terms, like can you lose your salvation? I see it a lot more about not can you lose your salvation or will you? It's more, will you be shown to have actually been in the faith or not? Like, were you just kidding yourself the whole time? Okay. Um, and I feel like that's kind of helped me like reconcile those things that you mentioned, like the warnings with the promises, like because you know obviously in the cases of some it might look like a gradual drifting away of like you know I'm deconstructing, I'm tired of this, I don't really believe this anymore. But I think for a lot of people, I mean, I think of Matthew 27, 21 through 23, where Jesus talks about depart from me, I never knew you. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going to get to the end and be surprised that they weren't in the faith. And I think Jesus gives us those warnings so that we can ask ourselves that question, like, am I sure that I'm in the faith? So that we can cling to him and not depend on our own strength. Because the more we're depending on, resting on our laurels, saying, I've been baptized, I've prayed the prayer, I'm a good person, the more we look at ourselves and what we're doing, I think the less we should be sure, but the more we're like, God, save me, I can't do this. The more we depend on God, the more I think that we can be sure that we will be fruitful Yeah, so Matthew 7 is huge because he says many will say on that day, not just a couple people here and there, but many. And what kind of things are they saying? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name? Anybody here do all three of those? (laughs) That's impressive. (laughs) And it wasn't, I used to know you, but... It's, I never knew you. There was never a relationship. It was never real. You can do all these things and not be genuinely saved. Look at Judas. Did the other disciples go, Hey, Jesus, how come Judas can't do miracles? How come Judas never gets an exorcism right? How come Judas, you know, his preaching just doesn't seem so flat? I mean, Judas was doing everything everybody else was doing, and at the Lord's at the Last Supper, when he said, one of you will betray me, they didn't know it was Judas. It wasn't, oh, it's obviously Judas. We've seen him. <laughs> he had everybody fooled except God. And I think, to your point, Brenna, I think a lot of people are self-deceived, and the last day will reveal who was real, who wasn't, and we are going to be wrong on some of our guesses on that. Uh, and we don't want to be wrong ourselves. So um, some, some of you newer ones haven't heard this yet, but uh, when I have gone to that text, I, I say, this is a passage everybody ought to lose at least one night's sleep over. And I had a, 
young lady telling me, I lost a whole week of sleep over that one. Good. It's better to lose sleep than lose your soul. So make sure. And then, just last week, let's end on a good note. What was 112 of 2 Timothy? You know the hymn. I know whom I have believed. Yeah. And I feel, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced, he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against the day. He's keeping me. Because if it's left to me to hang on tight enough, I will lose my grip and be gone. He keeps me. Uh, can I just read from 2 Peter before we, I know we're about done, but I just, one of my favorite texts, when like this idea of, of works and fruit, and in verse 8, chapter 1, it says, For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they are keeping you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore... Brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I think we're talking about this text of the ifs and thens. I mean, it's the mystery of the gospel, isn't it? Like there's commitments that we need to make, but it's a God who gives us the faith to do it. And I think that's really what that those couplets Paul's getting at is you need to persevere. You need to endure you cannot deny, but you will falter, and the faith that you will rest on is not a faith of your own producing. It's a, it's a production of God. And we can confirm it and make sure that we are called, as we're talking about today with Hebrews, but ultimately we know that he holds us fast. As the song says. Um, and another text that comes up is, here's Paul writing to a church, Second Corinthians, it says, Test yourselves, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Or do you not know this about yourself? That Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. So, church going people that are professing Christians, he says, Don't be so sure, don't just assume. Take a test like 1 John, <laughs> make sure it's real, and you're good if you are. But if you, pass, if you don't pass the test, get right. Don't just be one of those people that hear, Depart from me, I never knew you. You were warned. You've been warned. Any other comments, questions on this? We can. All right. So let me close with a quote. And we already looked at one of the texts, so two texts. Um, Samuel Rutherford, a name a couple of you might know. He was a pastor in Scotland in the 1600s. He spent some time in prison, like Paul, uh, for the truth of the gospel. So I think most of us would say, there's a committed follower of Jesus, right? You go to jail for the sake of the faith. Pretty hardcore, right? This is what he said. Quote, Often and often I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me. But, blessed be his name, he keeps it in heaven safe, and he stands by it always. So I think that fits verse that verse about if we're faithful, we're faithless, we're wobbly, he stays faithful, he cannot deny himself. Um, so let's look, we are looking for 2 Timothy 1 12. Look at 1 Samuel 12. And we'll end on this. 1 Samuel 12. Remember, the people of Israel were 
insisting on having a king to be like other nations. God said, I'm already your king. You don't need an earthly king. No, we want a king. So he tells Samuel, tell them what's going to happen if they get a king. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to tax you. He's going to do all this. I don't care. We want a king. And then Samuel confronts them after they have installed a king. Somebody read 12, 1 Samuel 12, 19 through 22. Paul said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all of our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Give me, well, two twenty-two, please. Twenty-two. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. But you have done all this. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. So here's evil, here's sin, they blew it, and he says, don't worry, the Lord won't abandon you, because he's called you for his great name. And that's our hope too. We falter. God will keep us because he has called us as his people. And he is faithful. So let's close in prayer. And Mark, would you please lead us? Lord, we thank you for the good discussion that are uh, at times weigh on our hearts and, and you've given us clarity and so many things. cannot keep ourselves. We thank you for good teachers and brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the sharpening of steel upon steel that uh, we might rightly divide the word of God. We thank you for this and we thank you that you uh, provide us with a good pastor and uh, that you give us sound doctrine and sound word from the pulpit. We ask you to bless him and bless our brothers and sisters all now.